Hello and welcome to Say That, the podcast for your big questions, get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host here in the city of Chicago. Once again, not joining us on his continuing tour of Asia, Africa, and the subcontinent, regular co-host Glenn Fitzgerald. But fear not, once again, we are joined by the dulcet tones of Jed Brewer. Greetings! And Lee Younger. Those were some dulcet tones. I find them to I, be I, such. <laughs> I'm hoping to, for someday to achieve docent tones, where it just you just feel like you're at a museum. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I like that. Yeah, good. Good. Good work out. We've got some great questions for you. We've got a wonderful show lined up. But first, I have to declare an anxiety-inducing emergency Uh-oh. for Whoa. some of us. Um. I turn to the pages of a little uh, news publication you may have heard of called the New York Times. Hmm. In the July 6th edition, on page A1, the following headline ran, Sermongate prompts a quandary. Should pastors borrow words from one another? <laughs> And for some of us, the the knowledge that stealing sermon points warranted uh, multiple column inches in the New York Times was a bit of a hair-raising thing. But this is about a specific one. L- luckily, we're not uh, lighting the, the torches and pitchforks for everyone who borrows a <laughs> sermon point here and there. But uh, the recent gentleman who was... Uh, elected the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, was apparently busted for giving some sermons, a sermon, the uh, main points, the outline, and some of the exact wording was identical to a sermon given four years ago by the outgoing president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Wait, for Wow. Yeah. For real? Um, wow. Leading to a number of possibilities. One is that president of the Southern Baptist Convention is a Doctor Who-like scenario where they kind of phase <laughs> in and out of each other. It just regenerates. Yeah, but with way less charm and way more poorly dressed. They do all look the same, though, Matt. Yes. Um, uh, I, don't, I don't think I've given you this before, the pastor in North Carolina. This is the out- ingoing guy tells his congregation before he goes on to list five selves that signify hostility to God, self-will, self-glory, self-gratification, self-righteousness, and self-sufficiency. Cut to an older pastor in Alabama at a lecture a year later. Let me give you five selves, he says. He rattles off the same list. Mm. Now, it's also possible that this is not a case of plagiarism, but just a case of kind of the... Uh, the guilt singularity where our friends in some conservative denominations just landed on here are the five things that you think are good, but God hates them. Ooh. <laughs> Surprise. Hate is really the best hate. Oh, when, when Matt goes into the Avengers voice, I just, I can't, it's, that's amazing. Yeah. Very grumbly. So apparently, and this is one of the many, many ways in which listeners of this show are ahead of the curve for good or ill. Apparently a number of people, both pastors, congregants, and uh, everything in between 
have recently been scandalized at the idea that pastors, particularly large membership and megachurch pastors, don't make up everything they say. <laughs> Unthinkable. I wouldn't think of it. <laughs> <laughs> Jed, I'm scrolling down this uh, this article here. Would you like yeah. to g- take a guess on who used the exact term unthinkable? Oh, um, mm. that would be influential retired pastor John Piper. Wait, for real? Has said it is uh. quote unthinkable. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I will say for for our listeners, uh, especially listeners that are newer to the show. That after our after this show that you're currently listening to, kind of you know caught a little steam and and started to get some fans and people were writing into the show and everything, that some other Christians decided to make a show called "What Are They Saying Now?" <laughs> I have no idea what you might mean, and there's no reason that came close on the heels of name checking. A certain Christian celebrity. Um, so yeah. yeah, there's a lot going on here. Um, here. Here's an insane paragraph. Uh, but a great sermon is also laborious to produce. It can include deep analysis of biblical texts, historical research, compelling anecdotes, a dose of humor, and a stirring call to action. Now imagine produce at least one such message every week, year after year, all based on the same collection of texts and delivered to the same audience. Uh, there's uh, there's an alarm bell in that last part, but that's just the world we're living in. Some full-time pastors report spending up to 30 hours a week on the task. <laughs> yep. More common is devoting two full work days to it. Oh, my sweet Lord. <laughs> and And I'm thinking about Matt starting his job at Mission USA and being given like eight minutes. To get ready for a sermon, something like that. Yep. Well, yeah, it's it's the Philip J. Fry School of Screenwriting. If it takes ten minutes to say, it should take ten minutes to write. Makes perfect sense to me. Yes, even today, and I'm not saying this is for good or ill. I just think it's it's my working process. As far as like write, I don't write them out, but thinking about exactly what I want to say, most of that happens in the car on the way there. Because <laughs> yeah. you know. It's like having a conversation with someone. I hope nobody spends two full work days working out the beats of lunch that they're going to have yeah. with their friends. <laughs> but having met a number of pastors, I'm not certain that that's exactly right. Well, hello, Jim. I'm so glad you could join me and we could share these BLTs together today. You know, as I was thinking about this, lunch that we are having <laughs> there were some things i wanted to say to you but first a funny joke knock knock jim a duck <laughs> well we've had a lovely time here today jim as you move forward sinless <laughs> oh my gosh that reminds me of fishing anyway sinless <laughs> that the the only way that could have been better jed is if you had had three words that all started with the same letter worked into the lunch conversation. <laughs> yeah. I, I recently attended a wedding where it was a very, um, a very, not quite mega churchy, but you know, a very polished, uh, larger church. 
uh, pastor was doing the the message, and he had three points, but he couldn't make them all start with the same letter, and you could just feel how much that killed him. <laughs> like he was like, "It's a wedding. This one has the last one has to be love, but the yeah. other two start with P's," and he just never seemed comfortable with it. Yeah, bless. Well, this brings up two possibilities, I think, to uh, capitalize on this trend, which the New York Times has dubbed Sermon Gate um, of, you know, stealing other people's ideas. Uh, One is Sermon Karaoke. Oh, I love that. Nice. That's really good. Where we're all just uh, full on that this is this is what this is. I'm, you know, I'm recreating. I, you know, I picked out a little book, a Spurgeon sermon. But it's more about the showmanship. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I like it. And then there's also full-on sermon lip-syncing. Oh, yeah. Wow. Which would lead to, I'm not sure what the the version would be, but something akin to, like, a sermon drag show. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. We're, you know, we're lip-syncing it, but we're really going out, out there with characters and costumes and whatnot. I got a couple of things. One, there's a way that we could make some money off this, which is, uh, which is first of all, always what we're trying to do with this kind of a deal. Yeah, we're not good at is, it, but we're trying. We're, certainly, we're going to swing the bat. But um, the idea of, uh, you know, like a sermons against humanity, like pro- like card prompts. Oh, where the, yes. Where pastor can just pull out the cards you know, out of a shuffled deck and, and give the sermon. We could, you know, we could, we could come up with enough cards to fill a deck. I would think the other thing is I like the idea of like, if look, if, if, if plagiarizing the guy that spoke four years ago, if that's getting a little too hot water, why don't you just give uh one of Polycarp's old sermons in the original language? Just, you know, he's not going to sue you. He's been dead for how many hundreds of years, you know? So you just, we just need to just dip back a little bit later, keep the original language, and and uh, and I, th- I think you're going to be okay. Here's my new happy place is I'm saying, you know, an original bit of Chrysostom oratory in the Latin, but delivered in the precise cadence and gesticulation of a megachurch sermon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that that's outstanding. Well, I think there's some overlap between the very, very old kind of Latin mass and the megachurch sermon in big hand movements. Yeah. A lot of playing to the to the final row. Well, just some just like Augustine or or St. John of the Cross wearing one of those little Britney mics also could be great. Yeah, absolutely. Finding his lighting. <laughs> you know, uh Ambrose of Milan waiting for that perfect moment to step out from in from behind the lectern to really, really make that point. <laughs> Well, with a, with a lot of good hair gel. That's right. I want to see if I can make this work. I've got a little bit of Crisis Dom here. It's been translated in, into English, but I, I've I've got a pretty good uh, generic megachurch pastor voice. I, I want to see if I can make this work. So let me, you know, kind of let's workshop this together and you fellas see what you think. You ready for this? Please. <laughs> for The master is bountiful and receives the last even as the first, he gives rest to him on the eleventh hour. Even as to him who has labored from the first, he's merciful to the last and provides for the first to the one he gives, and to another he shows kindness. 
Wow, Mega Church Jed, I was not ready for that. Yeah, I, I think I think that works. I mean, it, it, you know, it could get better, but I think there's something there. Holy yeah, cow. I think no nowhere more than in kind of modern large church settings is it literally all in the delivery. Yep. Well, I, I, another thing, and this is just kind of ancillary to the to to the 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 content of the emergency. But of course, Brother Glenn is is not well as we're recording this. I guarantee you that what, wherever he is and whatever's happening to him right now. That when Mega Church Jed started, he felt a disturbance in the force and just started twitching. <laughs> Dude, you know that's right. Mega Church Jed, not to be confused with Mega Jed, which is the giant robotic Jed we keep working on. Mega Jed. But he still talks like that, which is very, very disconcerting. <laughs> it's the Mega Church cadence, but in a low robotic voice. Yeah. Well, I think another thing you could do if you wanted to not really rip off a sermon so much is just famous other kind of Christian writers and uh, things from history. Mm -hmm. Some of those get a little more uh, esoteric. So I'd love you could do like a nice Kierkegaard in the megachurch delivery, Uh, maybe some Dostoevsky if you really want to freak people out. Wow. You know, I'm looking at uh, Blaise Pascal here, you know, habit is a second nature that destroys the first. But what is nature? Why is habit not natural? I'm very much afraid that nature itself is only a first habit, just as habit is a second nature. And to see if anyone notices or if their ears start bleeding or anything. Oh, that's very good. <laughs> that's very good. Yeah. Um, but the I want to go back to one of Lee's ideas there with the card game, because I think what Lee is pitching there is improv preaching. Wow. And that is the only kind of improv show I would go to. <laughs> You get the pastor up there, and I, 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 need, I need to do the anecdote here. Somebody give me a hobby. Flying a kite. Yeah. Okay, I need a, a standard standard suburban temptation. Standard suburban temptation. Who's got one? Getting angry Greed. in traffic. <laughs> I need a movie that played on TBS a lot when I was in my 20s. <laughs> S- says the podcast hosts who constantly reference the 80s. This is what we- I'm saying. <laughs> Well, then you could do the advanced one of, I need a current trend that I don't really know what it is, but I know enough to name check it and try to work it in. I need a social media platform I don't understand to reference. TikTok! (laughs) These kids today, they're all all busy with the TikToks. You know what I mean, parents. Anyways, constancy. Sweet constancy. (laughs) Yes. Virtue, virtue. Letter of the alphabet. Oh my gosh, that's funny. Omicron. <laughs> I feel like we've we've gone past pitching uh, something for uh, pastors here. I feel like we could open our own seminary with this. Only this being the only exercise. I promise you, the <laughs> preaching would be better at the end of that. Like, give us a, you teach them all the book stuff for like the first year, and just give us the next year where we just make them do this, and things are going to be a lot better off. <laughs> Okay, audience, I need a moment from the Lord of the Rings movies. A moment from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Borog! <laughs> Everybody's uh. favorite. Yeah, I need a sport that only 20% of the people in this room watch. <laughs> Cricket! Oh, gosh. Getting all 10 spiritual wickets. Oh, well done. Matt, I want to ask nice. you a question, and I want to get personal for a second. Who's the bowler in your life? 
Oh, a second <laughs> cricket thing. I was really hoping that question wasn't what's another cricket word because I was <laughs> pretty dry on- up on that one. The only thing I would have been able to say is that I know that they gloriously all drink hot tea at halftime. Do they really? Yeah, in test in, matches, in a cricket. Yeah. yeah, so you'll have you'll have a, a a break right in the middle of the game. We're we're in sweaters and slacks. And we're going to have hot tea right here in the middle of a game. Fantastic. You know, random side note, I, I learned recently that, you know, apparently it's kind of a, a sworn by trick in some very, very warm parts of the world that like hot tea, when it's really, really hot out, will apparently cool you down. I, I, this is just freaking me out ever since I've heard it. I'm in. Sounds like propaganda by big T to me. did lipton get to you jed the bigelow cartel (laughs) i've noticed jed's been wearing some so many twinnings uh branded logoed shirts recently i didn't think anything of it until right now (laughs) why do your ray-bans say lipton on the side jed (laughs) you know that's a lot of talking fellas and all that talking is making me thirsty for tea Yes, you can have your Caspers and your uh, whatever the razor company that sponsors all the podcasts is. We're shooting for that sweet, sweet tea sponsorship. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I will close out this emergency by reading this real sentence from the New York Times about a real thing that exists. Full text and outlines of sermons are widely available on websites like Sermon Central and Logos, ostensibly for reference and inspiration. Consulting services like Docent Research Group offer pastors substantial help with research and planning. Some larger churches, including Mr. Litton's, who's the uh, SBC guy, employ in-house preaching teams that collaborate on sermon production. In a now-deleted endorsement on Docent's website, Mr. Greer, the other SBC guy, thanked the organization for saving him time on sermon prep. Quote, I often have people remark to me, how many hours did you spend on that sermon? Where do you get the time to do all that research? Unquote. He wrote, ha, thanks guys for making me look so good. Wow. I'm just saying, I don't know what docent research group starts, uh, charges, but I promise we can undercut them by 90%. And how? Cause we are going to spend 98% less time on it, but you won't have to do it. I'm just picturing us yeah. kind of having a, a Mad Lib style thing of like <laughs> fishing anecdotes. Yeah. Current events joke. Old movie. All right, here you go. I think we can get away with that for like 10 years. Yep. Attribute of God. Verse out of context. <laughs> That's right. I did love the, the part of this this thing where the writer, who's a very good uh, reporter of your times, would just kind of lay out like, here are the five um, recurring things that every one of these sermons has. Imagine having to do that every week. It. Doesn't really sound that uh, difficult when you put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> it has to be a dose of humor. A dose, fellas. And all that said, we will declare emergency off. But cold chills about these guys very much still on. Yeah. Yeah. I hope. I don't think anyone who listens to this podcast had their innocence ruined with the idea that uh, celebrity pastors and don't write their own sermons, but you know, if you, if you really were there, we, we hope to be there for you. We also hope to be there for you with bridge box, which comes out the first of every month, missionusa.com slash bridge box. You want to get some songs, sermons, Bible studies, and the like into your inbox. 
And you can join us every Sunday at 7 p.m. Central Time or whenever you get around to it if you can't join us live for our bridge cast. Come and enjoy some sermons that definitely were put together in less than two working days. <laughs> also, some songs, worship, a lot of fun stuff recorded live at our Tuesday Bridge service. If you can't be with us in Tuesday in Chicago, the bridge cast is the next best thing. 7 p.m. Central Time, Facebook.com slash The Bridge Chicago. Move on to our first question here. If you hang out with us all the way to the end, I'll give you some ways to get in touch with this, or you can scroll down into your episode description, click the links you find there. Our first question comes in and says, I feel like I sometimes pray compulsively. I pray for specific things so much that I can't think about anything else. I don't think this is healthy. How do I pray about things without obsessing? I think it's a very, very cool question. And Lee, I think it's a very interesting uh, and important delineation to make. And where would we start off? Yeah, I, I like this question. I, I like, I actually like the idea of, of as a person that that knows, believes in, is trying to figure out what it means to walk with Jesus, of just being in contact with Him all the time, just being kind of a mental and emotional contact with the Lord, just kind of keeping the line open. Um, that's actually really cool. I think, I I think there's a there's a piece of this that that is is something that we want to say, yeah, there, there may be something funky going on here, but mainly I like this idea of I'm, I'm in contact with the Lord all day. That's really cool. Um, what I would say is what we want to do to move past what you're calling the obsessive piece, I think that's going to involve kind of changing the way that you talk to the Lord about these things once you've prayed about it. So you, you've got a situ- situation that you've got some anxiety about. You take that to the Lord, you lay out the thing, and then um, rather than uh, obsessing on it um, with him a- after that point, kind of change the mental gear using uh, some kind of, kind of training yourself to use some different words with him. Like, okay, I've already laid out the situation. Rather than continue the same kind of maybe uh, anxiety-angled prayer about that, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to tell the Lord... Hey, I trust that you're going to work this out for me in some way. I trust that you've got some way of hooking me up that maybe I don't understand yet. I don't see how it will happen, but I'm going to I'm going to keep you on the line, but I'm going to I'm just going to say I thank you for the fact that I can trust you. Um maybe that involves um taking some time to intentionally uh think back in your own story to other times the Lord hooked you up when you didn't know what it was going to be. You see what I'm saying here? We keep Jesus on the line. That part is great. Um, But we move past some of the obsession on the anxiety by changing the way that we think about this issue. I'm no longer just saying, you know, I'm so afraid of this thing. Please hook it up. I can't see how it could be anything but disaster. Now I'm changing my vocabulary to... I don't know how you're going to be able to do this, but I believe that you're working something out. I, I trust you in that. I, I need you to help me with that trust. I need you to give me more faith or whatever the thing is, but I trust that you're doing something that I can't see. Um, and and just kind of changing some of the ways that you talk about the things with Jesus Um it may help you kind of push past some of this anxiety. Tell him you're looking forward to see how he's going to work it out. This is still communication with Jesus. Like I'm saying, we're keeping him on the line, but intentionally changing some of the vocabulary about it can 
alter the way that you're experiencing that conversation emotionally. So we're not obsessing on these things. Now we're moving into kind of really just enjoying being together. Um, You're moving into some things that may look a little bit more like uh, praise, that may look a little bit more like um, now I'm going to um, ask the Lord to give me uh, certain virtues. Uh, I'm, I'm going to ask him to fill me with things that I don't have in myself. Rather than obsessing on the one issue that's giving me anxiety, I'm moving into other areas of our relationship or other other uh, kind of, I'm, also, I'm almost changing the tense, if that, if that makes any sense, of, of this situation. I'm moving out of the present tense of it, and I'm already kind of standing in the future tense. I know that you're going to work this out in some cool way. I love that about you. I love that you've done that for me in the past. I know that I don't see how you're going to do it yet, but I'm excited to see how that's going to work out. Help me, help me to be calm in the middle of this as I, as I, as I wait on you to hook me up. And, um, and, and, and help me change the channel by giving my heart something else to focus on. I, I love your constant contact with the Lord. I think that we can start to get some different vocabulary to change the obsession into a different kind of prayer. I think that's a really, really solid foundation to start off on and a lot of great stuff out there. And Jed, where would you pick it up? Well, I want to turn to, in the Bible, the parable of the persistent widow, because um, this is something that a lot of folks are taught about. And There are a few layers of meaning to it that I think we need to unpack together. So um, the actual, I'll just read you because it's a a short little story that Jesus told. It comes from from Luke chapter 18, um, and it it goes, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. All right, cool. So there's a story, and that's the takeaway. Jesus said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time, the judge refused. But finally, he said to himself, quote, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that, uh, she won't eventually come back and attack me. And the Lord said, quote, listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? All right, we can go ahead and, and stop there. Um, this is a pretty popular parable, so if you, particularly if you've grown up in church, you've, you've probably heard it before. And it's good stuff, and again, uh, the Bible is clear right up front. The point of this parable is you should always pray and you should not give up. But that said, there are actually some details about the story that are worth examining because they're going to give some context to the question from our question asker. Um, if Anytime you're reading something in the Bible and you want to understand it better, uh, a commentary is a really great way to do that. And I strongly recommend uh, the Barclay, B-A-R-C-L-A-Y, Commentaries for the New Testament. So if you look up this story in the Barclay Commentaries, it's going to note a couple things. The first is uh, just there are some historical clues that the kind of judge that was appointed here, uh, that we're talking about here, was appointed by the Romans uh, specifically, um, and that everybody knew those judges were corrupt. Um, everybody knew that, that those were, were, uh, bad dudes who did bad stuff and, and, you know, would, would cheat everybody. And of course the, the second thing is that due to some really uncool stuff culturally, um, and, and just in, in the society of the time, um, the, the hero here or the heroine, the, the widow, um, 
pleading to this judge was basically the only thing that she had. That that was the the only tool in in the toolbox. And so a part of of the point of what Jesus is saying here is even when you're down to only one thing left, keep going and don't give up, which is really cool and really important. But now with all that said, here's my question for you. Is that the only tool that you have in this situation? Because in the parable of the persistent widow, prayer and persistence was all that she had. But is that all that you have? And the reason that I ask you that is that for most of us, most of the time, prayer is an important part of pursuing a goal, but it's only one part. Mm -hmm. There's also planning, strategizing, asking people for help, working. These are all key parts of pursuing any goal. And we need all of those parts in proportion with one another. Prayer is good. Prayer is essential. We don't want to pursue goals with no prayer, but we also don't want to pursue goals with no strategizing, with no working, with no asking for external help. And I don't know the the kind of Christian tradition that you grew up in, or if you grew up in one at all, but I have certainly been around uh, certain denominations and traditions that want to do about 99% praying and about 1% planning and working and strategizing if we get to it. Um, And that's actually not the point of uh, the parable of the persistent widow. Um, I want to encourage you that if you are feeling like you just, you're, you're praying compulsively about something, I wonder if part of the struggle is you're not sure what else you can do to pursue this goal that's really important to you. Mm. And if that's where you're at, there are a lot of other things you can do. Again, you can plan of, uh, regarding this goal that you're pursuing. You can strategize about how we're going to get there. You can ask other people for help, and th- that includes material help like you know money and um, volunteer manpower and, uh, and resources. But it can also include advice and guidance, which will help a lot with the planning and the strategizing parts of it. And, of course, there's work. There are almost no goals in life that can be achieved without just like hard work, you know, just nose to the grindstone and and getting after it. And if we are engaging in those things, A, uh, that will probably just reduce the amount of time that we're spending, you know, obsessively uh, praying about it. But the other thing is it might actually begin to give some shape to our prayers, very similar to what Lee is saying, um, that God might guide our planning process and our strategizing process, that he might lead us to the right people who could help us and, and um, yeah. you know, give us uh, wisdom on how to approach those people, that he might give us uh, strength for the hard work that is doubtlessly before us and, and courage to, to undertake it. So again, prayer is good and persistent prayer is good, but we don't want to get into a place where we're expecting that as a Christian, persistent prayer would be the only thing that we are called to do. We're also called to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, to, to plan and strategize and, and, and ask and work and do all those things. And you've got what it takes to do that. And I think you're going to feel better and see better results and get some good momentum the more that you have all those things in proper proportion with each other. Another excellent, excellent point. Proportion is really critical here. And another way in which that can be exercised, that proportion, is within our prayer life itself. Um, I think a lot of folks, and I know this has happened for me, and a lot of folks we work with here in Chicago, when they get in this kind of obsessive, compulsive, as you put it, praying, oftentimes that is kind of one request. And it's a very spe- mostly a very specific one. 
It is less, Lord, I need a job, and Lord, I need this job. Give me this job. Give me this job. Give me this uh, relationship or this apartment or this, you know, whatever the the next thing is. And one of the ways we can uh, have a little bit more peaceful time in that and not fall into this obsessive pattern is to put ourselves in a position to do uh, some listening, to put ourselves in a position to ask some questions Mm. in our prayer time. Uh, so if we find ourselves with uh, a, a huge case of target lock and it doesn't feel like things are moving forward or things are being healthy, one of the very, very helpful things we can do is start just checking in on, is there anything else? Is there another thing I should be looking at? Are there other opportunities that I should uh, have as a backup plan or be looking at as well or doing at the same time as this? And as Jed points out, maybe it's you know, I had an interview for this uh, job that I would love and think would uh, be great. And it's just, they're just not getting back to me and it's not a yes or a no. And I'm losing my mind. I'm losing my mind. You know, are there other applications I should be filling out just in case, maybe just to give myself something to do in the job portion of my life so that I'm doing something other than, than sitting here and waiting if it's not if I'm not able to make the waiting a peaceful process, what are some other things I can be doing? And there are a lot of good ways to kind of change the channel, even in your own prayer life and and give another muscle as Lee was talking about a a workout. And that can be a very, very helpful thing. We're going to move on to our next question here. It comes in and says, so Philippians 4.13, is it wrong that I kind of hate that verse? It seems to be boiled down to bumper stickers or Instagram Instagram profiles or pro athletes quoting it. And like, no matter how much I believe in Jesus, I can't run a one-hour marathon or turn invisible. So what does it really mean? And again, another another great question, and we we really love the uh the picking apart at the the kind of the, the cliches and the, the bumper sticker verses as Lee will will call them quite often. And Jed, where would we start out with Philippians 4:13? It's a great question, man, and I, I really dig the both the honesty and the snark. Um, so I, I feel like yeah. we're we're already vibing. Um, so let's start by reading Philippians four thirteen, and we're going to read it actually in the King James uh, because Ooh. that's the version Jesus used. Uh, it, it, <laughs> English it is, <laughs> Jesus, the most polite of Jesuses. <laughs> Uh, critically, though, it's also the version that you've heard most often. So um, the King, the, well, actually, we do the New King James. Um, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Okay, cool. That that does sound like it belongs on a poster. Uh, let's have a very, very brief nerd moment. So, as you know, the Bible was not written in English. Don't tell Aunt Mildred. I know she believes that, but it wasn't. Um, this part of the Bible was written in Greek, and so it had to be translated. And the thing is, when you translate stuff. Um, there are two basic ways you can approach translating. There's a word-for-word translation, which is what most people think of. Like when you go to Google Translate and you use it, that's what it's doing. It's a word-for-word translation. But there's another form of translation, which is what you would get like if you hired a translator to be with you in a business meeting. And there you're getting what's called a thought-for-thought translation. Um, the, the idea is to try and understand the broader context of what's being communicated and put that in to the second language in a way that actually flows and makes sense in that language. 
And it's really cool. If you've ever read the, the message translation of the Bible, that is a thought-for-thought translation, not word-for-word. Most translations of the Bible are word-for-word. The message is thought-for-thought. I'm going to read you uh, not just Philippians 4.13, but a few of the surrounding verses from the message. But I want you to have in your mind the idea that this is a thought-for-thought translation. It's not trying to use the same language. It won't sound the same. But it's actually trying to communicate in English what was meant in the Greek when Paul wrote this. So, um, roughly speaking, this is around verses 11 to 14. Um, Actually, I don't have a sense of needing anything personally. I've learned by now to be quite content whatever my circumstances. I'm just as happy with little as with much, with much as with little. I found the recipe for being happy, whether full or hungry, hands full or hands empty. Whatever I have, wherever I am, I can make it through anything and the one who makes me who I am. I don't mean that your help didn't mean a lot to me. It did. It was a beautiful thing that you came alongside me in my troubles. Okay, uh, interesting. First of all, there's obviously a broader context here that some people had done some stuff to to help Paul, and he wanted to to thank them and, and to make a broader point. The second thing is what's being described here, which is you know I can I can make it through all kinds of stuff because you know I know that the, the Lord will sustain me. That's not quite the same meaning as I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. Mm-hmm. Um, which again may be a word for word translation, but it's not exactly a thought for thought translation. And I think that it points to the fact that you are right in what you're suggesting with your question. You're suggesting that people have have taken this verse out of context and they've they've made it into a motivational slogan when that's not really what it was intended as. And you're right, you are not going to run a one hour marathon and you are not going to turn invisible. Here's what you can do, though, and I think ties into the actual meaning of that passage. You can, one day at a time, do the specific thing that God is calling you to do in your own unique life. You will have what you need for that. If God is not calling you to summit Mount Everest, you should not count on his strength to do it. (laughs) Um, that's, That's just not how this works. Wisdom and provision go hand in hand. Just like Matt was talking about in our last question, listening for the voice and leading of the Lord of what God is calling you to do goes hand in hand with him providing what you need to go do that. There's an old saying, particularly amongst missionaries, that says, where God guides, he provides. And it's true. It's been true in my life. I imagine it'll be true in your life. But again, it's where God guides. Um, The idea of I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, that's that's not applying to whatever weird ideas I come up with. That's applying to the things that God has specifically for me to do in my unique life. Where God guides you, you specifically, he will make sure that you have what you need to make it through one more day, and you can do that. Absolutely right. A really, really wonderful place to start off. And as for where God guides, he provides, we know based on the modest is hottest discussion, it has to be true because it rhymes. <laughs> this one has the uh, benefit of also being true because it's true. Uh, and Lee, I love where Jed started us off with this verse. Where would you pick us up there? Yeah, it's fantastic. And, uh, you know, really, Jed covered it. There's there's not a ton to add here. It is worth pointing out that in the specificity of what, you know, Jed's saying, whatever, whatever the particular thing God is asking you to go through, he's going to give you the strength for. If you don't know it, um, the, the the guy that wrote this, was a guy that grew grew up well off. He he grew up with just a lot of means. Um, he grew up in a in a city in uh, in Turkey. I 
parents who had a lot of money, they sent him all the way to Jerusalem to go to basically to like a a high school and university um, education with the most prominent scholar in of of all of their people. Um, he then was the he was like the the you know the highest ranking pupil of the of the highest ranking scholar of all of their people. This was a this was a wealthy and important guy who then got into uh, the ruling class where he would have made a lot of money, and then at a certain point he met Jesus. And um, when you kind of read his conversion story, Jesus literally appeared to a guy in a different city and said, "Hey, I just knocked a dude <laughs> for a, like a whirlwind experience. He's on the side of the road a few miles from your house. I want you to go out and get him." I need to exp- I need to start explaining to him kind of slowly how hard his life is going to get because I'm going to ask him to do some hard things and I'm going to be with him in the whole thing but I I want you to be a part of that process. And this guy who grew up extremely extremely well off and extremely prominent and important became a person who had a lot of difficult things happen to him and a lot of that became uh traveling around with n- not a lot of money and and not a lot of possessions and not a lot of stuff. And he's writing this letter to the the church in Philippi um as an older man who was actually in prison. And he and he was saying and the in the first chapter of this letter he's saying to them, "I know you're really worried about the fact that I'm in jail. I need you to know that God is doing some really cool stuff through that whole process." So it's it's not the disaster you think it is. Actually, the Lord is doing some cool stuff in that. And then he gets to this place at the end of the letter as Jed's saying, thanking them for their support of him and stuff like that, and he and he lets them know, "Look, um, if you support me, that's fantastic. If you can't, I know that God will provide for me. And by the way, God will provide everything you need as well. He says that like f- six verses after this super famous verse that that Jed read and that you're asking about. This specific thing in Paul's life was he grew up having everything he needed, and now Jesus was walking him through a road where he didn't have anything, and he was he had no possessions, and he was in jail. And he had been poor for a lot of years. And he's like, Jesus has asked me to do this now. I grew up this way, and now I'm living this way. And he has allowed me to learn how to do that. I'm doing a hard thing well. And it's because Jesus is in me. That word, um, you know, we were talking about the original language. And, um, and, and, and you know, Jed had talked about how to use Bible Hub in our last episode, and, and you can find out things about these words. When it says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, that word through is a word that means in, in the same way that like the Holy Spirit is inside a person who believes in Jesus. Jesus dwells inside you. The one who is asking you to do the hard thing actually lives inside you to empower you to be able to do the thing that he's calling you to do. It's it's exactly what Jed's saying. In Paul's life, it was, hey, you grew up a rich kid who had everything. Now you're going to have a life where you have nothing. And, um, and I'm going to be with you every single step of the way, and I'm going to show you how to do it. I'm going to give you strength for it. I'm going to give you new attitudes for it. I'm going to give you new coping strategies for it. I'm going to give you healthy ways to understand it and to walk through it. And you're going to school it. And that's that's what we want to understand with 
with, you know, the specific context was a rich guy learned how to be not rich and to do it really well with a great attitude and a whole lot of faith and all that stuff. Be, and it, but it was because through Christ, in other words, it, the original language, Christ was literally inside him. Jesus is inside him every step of the way, giving him the strength that he needs, giving him the understanding and the wisdom that he needs to be able to do it well. I think that's another fantastic layer to put on this. And the, the one note I will make as we close this out is it kind of takes us back to what, what Jed was saying and what Lee is expanding on us there and the, the wider context of this verse, because this is one of those verses that, that gets boiled down and bumpered stickered and put on the, uh, you know, the wrist tape of a five-star uh, recruit who's headed for the, the first round of the NFL, and yet somehow no one believed in him, which is always a strange uh, irony to me. But uh, and it's a it's a motivational thing in some way, I guess. But it is can be can be and is often used as motivation free of the actual context. It's just kind of a you know along with any other uh, no fear slogan to use. Yet another '90s reference for this episode. Um, but uh, the fascinating thing that happens to me for me is in the next verse in Philippians four thirteen. He says, I can do all things through him. It gives me strength. And he says, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Um, one of the things that Philippians four thirteen is not is a call to be a, a brutally rugged individualist who uh, doesn't need anyone or anything. It's just you and God uh, against an uncaring world. And you're going to show all them and that kind of very rocky overcoming uh, narrative that we're all so used to, as both Jed and Lee are pointing out, this is a statement made by a person and about a situation where they were getting help from other people that they needed to to grow and be the things they need to do, and that was certainly part of the work and the strength that is going on here. So of the many, many ways this verse gets not even necessarily misused, but used in a very incomplete context. One of them is, to me, the the glorification of the individual over uh, the collective of kind of this idea that because I can do all things through him who gives me strength, I don't need other people, and I don't need to be vulnerable, and I don't need to uh, need help but need friends and have needs at all. That's not what this verse is saying. If anything, a lot closer to the opposite. This is admitting those things we need, letting other people be a part of what God is doing in our lives, which is a much more fulfilling prospect. We're going to answer our last question here. It comes in and says, I hear people tell me that it's good to have confidence. Those same people tell me that it's that humility is good as well. That's confusing to me because when I'm really confident in what I think and feel, I usually don't feel like I have to be humble. How does God want me to be humble and confident at the same time? Another really good question. And Lee, where do we kick this one off? I think that, um, I, yeah, I like, I like this question as well. And I think that where we get tripped up is that we, we have kind of a blurry definition of the difference between confidence and pride. Um, that, you know, the idea that like, oh man, well, if you're confident, that means you're not humble. Well, sometimes that could mean that somebody, you know, they're, they're so confident in their abilities that they come off like they're, you know, that there's just, there's nothing wrong with them. They're never, you know, they're, they never mess up. They're the best. They're the greatest. Well, that's really pride. I think that there is a godly confidence that you can have alongside humility in the same way that, I mean, 
you know, it's like there is a there is a way that you can be confident without being filled with pride. Pride is the thing that gets in the way of humility. Um, when somebody is filled with pride, they are never wrong. They don't apologize. They don't ask for forgiveness. They don't. They they don't need anybody else's help. They don't need anybody else's wisdom. They don't want to hear from anybody else. Um, that's not what. That's not the same thing as confidence. Confidence. There, I, I think back again to the Apostle Paul, who we've just been talking about. There's this place in First Corinthians chapter four, where he has this, he has this little kind of passage where he says, "I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court." Now that comes off as it, it could come off as prideful, but the very next thing he says is, he says, "I don't even judge myself. That doesn't make me innocent." Um, the, the Lord knows the, the stuff that's, you know, that's out of whack with me. The Lord will judge me. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm just saying, I'm not going to let you determine who I am. I'm, I'm not, and I'm not hard on myself. Um, that doesn't mean I'm perfect, but, and, and I love, I've always loved that passage and, and I've strained for it of like the kind of confidence of that, of a person that says, I believe some things about myself. I believe God loves me. I believe that Jesus has saved me and forgiven me. I believe that God has given me gifts. I believe that because of who I am in God, I bring something to the table that's important. I believe that God wants to use me. That's a person that's confident. That doesn't mean, though, that, a, that that person is prideful. That kind of confidence is the kind of person who says, now, look, let's get it straight. I need teamwork. I need friends. I need prayer. I need the Lord to hook me up and help me out. Um, you know, when when I first met um when I first met Glenn and I would hear him preach and stuff, and I'm like, dang, that's a confident dude. He doesn't have a, a you know, he's not like suffering under a lot of insecurities and stuff like that. And then he asked me to preach at their bridge service, and I, and I remember saying to him, What's the the number one thing I need to remember before I get up on this stage to to preach in this room? You know, these are your people. You understand what's going, what the deal is, and everything. What's the number one thing I need to remember? He said, the 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 most important thing before you grab that microphone is you need to be in the place where you are honestly telling the Lord, I don't have this, and I need you to help me. And I was like, whoa, that's awesome. There, there is a mixture of confidence and humility. It's not the pride of like, I can do anything. I can do it better than anybody and all that kind of stuff. I st I'm still a mess. I still sometimes am a jerk. I need to confess that to people. I still need teamwork. I still need help. I'm not good at everything. But I know that Jesus loves me. So I'm not going to be down on myself all the time. And I'm not going to be hard on myself. I know that God has given me gifts and has a plan for my life and wants to use me. So I'm not going to let myself be riddled with insecurities all the time. I want to be confident and also humble. We need to set that pride piece aside by having some honest humility, but we also don't want to swing so far that we're riddled with insecurity. I know that God loves me. I don't care if other people judge me. Um, I know that God has brought things to the table because of who I am. I know that I belong in his family. I know that I belong in these rooms and in these circles, but I still know that I need a lot of help, a lot of friends. I need a lot of forgiveness. 
and I need the Lord's help as well. When we learn the balance, the difference between pride and confidence, and the difference between um, confidence and you know humility and insecurity, then we find a very powerful thing, a confidence in who God has made me and a humility that keeps me depending on him. That is a really cool balance. A really excellent place to start that off and so much good stuff there. Jed, where would we close it out? So here are the definitions that I would use. I would say that humility simply means having an accurate picture, picture of yourself. That includes both strengths and weaknesses. Humility is not having a negative opinion of yourself uh, at all. Uh, humility is having an accurate picture of yourself, strengths and weaknesses. And I think that confidence is having an accurate picture of the things that you know how to do. And therefore, by those definitions, humility and confidence go together. They are not opposites. They're, they're not even counterbalances. They're, they're just, they just go together. If you are humble and confident, meaning you have an accurate picture of yourself, strengths and weaknesses, and you have an accurate picture of what you know how to do, then you know what you know and you know what you don't know. Um, you are aware of your limits and, and knowing your limits also means that you know your capacity. If, if you know that you know uh, one thing is beyond what you're capable of, you will also know that uh, another thing is well within your wheelhouse and you can pull it off. Um, not, the interesting thing is that having an accurate picture of yourself and having an accurate, accurate picture of what you know how to do, none of that translates at all into thinking that you are just magically and by birthright the most amazing person who has ever lived. Right. Uh, which is typically, you know, what we think of when we think of someone who's, who's, who's prideful and, and arrogant. Um, if you know how to do a, a certain kind of job, you know, you, you know how to change the oil on a car, for example, it would be really weird to like pretend that you don't know that. Um, like that, it's not humility to say, well, I mean, I have changed the oil on hundreds and hundreds of cars during my time working at Jiffy Lube, but I mean, I could get it wrong tomorrow and it could all fall apart. Like that, that's actually not humility. That's, that's just kind of weird, but it's worth noting that that's weird because you will see a lot of Christians model that behavior. Um, you, you'll see a lot of Christians who feel like they have a, a spiritual obligation to pretend that they don't know things that, that they do definitely know. Then on the other side, if you said, well, I mean, I've worked at the Jiffy Lube for three years. I mean, I've, I've, I've changed the oil on cars more times than I can count. So probably I could go be a Formula One mechanic starting tomorrow. Well, now that's not an accurate picture of, of your capacity and your capabilities. Someday that might be possible if we work towards that and we, and we train towards that. But, um, that, that's not confidence, uh, Confidence might say, look, I clearly have some, some acumen and some prowess for working on automobiles. I'm confident that I can grow further than I have already come in it. And I dream of the idea of doing something as elite as being, you know, on the pit crew in, in NASCAR. That's cool. That's certainly well within the uh, healthy bounds of humility and confidence. But I think that we don't, we don't see that model terribly often, which is why we aren't inclined to, to think of that as being a possibility. And weirdly, mm -hmm. I think that this may link back to our last question. I think that America is very much a power of positive thinking as a form of civic religion place. 
we we don't like people saying um we don't like measured approaches to optimism of well i've done this much and and i i'd like to continue to grow in that and we take verses like i can do all things through christ which strengthens me and we kind of baptize our out of control, untethered to reality optimism and say, well, God could make anything possible for you. So you should just, whatever it is, you should just go do it. That's, that's not it. Um, that's not humble. It's not confident. It's not Christian and it's not tethered to reality. Uh, again, a humble person has an accurate picture of themselves. A confident person has an accurate picture of what they know how to do. For me, I'm confident I can write a pop song because I've done it many, many times. Um, yeah. that, that's not a brag. It's just, it's a thing I've done a lot of. I'm not confident that I can write an article for a medical journal because nothing in my background suggests that I could. Um, they both involve the word writing, but they have they have no other, <laughs> other overlap of any kind at all. So you asked, how does God want me to be humble and confident at the same time? God wants you to have an accurate picture of yourself, strengths and weaknesses both. And he wants you to have an accurate picture of, of the things that you know how to do and that you can do reliably and the things that you really don't that are growth areas for you where you're going to need some help, obviously from him, um, but also from other human beings. If you take a hold of appropriate godly humility and appropriate godly confidence, uh, you're going to find that those open so many doors for you, uh, stave off so many problems and really hold you in good stead for the rest of your life. That's another great angle on this whole thing. I love what both these guys said. I would add one thing on the topic of what Jed is saying there about accuracy, because a word we used when we talked about this at the bridge was uh, honesty. There's just, if you're good at something and you can be confident, the level that you can be confident of that, that's just honest. If you're, if you uh, are a good distance runner, it's, and you run a six minute mile, then you're pretty, pretty good at that. That's, you're not maybe necessarily training for the Olympics, but that's not what you're saying. You you have an accurate thing about that. And the way that ties into humility is uh, the opposite of humility is not confidence. The opposite of humility is self-obsession. Mm. Um, humility is this great gift where it gives us the opportunity to just check the box and move on. And you can check a box by both being good at something or sucking at it. Like, yep. Um, I can be very humble about my golf game, not because it's good, but because it's terrible and it's terrible <laughs> to a point that without a lot, a lot more effort than I'm willing to put into it, it's never going to be very good. But if someone invites me out and says, Hey, you want to go play golf? I say, I suck. Is that cool? Most people say, yeah, it's a fun day out and we can, we can all be fine with that. And to Lee's point, if I get told, uh, with, uh, that someone canceled and I have to preach at the bridge, I can also kind of be confident and humble in the same time about that because I've done that a bunch. Yeah. I know what it takes to do that. I know where I need the Lord to, to meet me in that and have that conversation like Lee was saying, but what it doesn't, what humility gives you is not having to be in that cycle of, am I good enough? Am I good enough? Am I, am I worried enough? Being good enough? Am I being too confident? Am I off putting and being arrogant? Because it just allows you to state something as a fact, you know? Jed stated a fact. I've written a bunch of pop songs. That's a true thing. It's not, there's no value judgment to that. It just, it just is. You probably have things you are good at and you have things you uh, need to grow in. But the thing about some of the ways we think about things like confidence and humility is more, less of what we actually feel and more of what we're trying to project, projecting confidence, projecting humility. And that 
takes a lot of effort. Um, it takes a lot of effort mm. to dial in. Well, how much can I talk about being good at this without coming off arrogant or, well, how, you know, how should I be down about myself about this? And people will think this, that, and the other. If you're getting to the point of working through humility by way of confidence, uh, you can just state things that are as they are. I, oh yeah, I've done that a bunch. I'm, I'm, I think I'm okay at that. No, never done that. And that's fine because I have these other things I am good at. And we land there on that. And if you'd like to hear more about humility versus confidence, you can check out our July 11th edition of the Bridgecast uh, that I did a sermon on. Uh, We had uh, some other great speakers that night, some music, a lot of fun stuff. You can find that at facebook.com slash thebridgechicago. And if you have a question for us, you can write into saythatpodcast at gmail.com, thebridgechicago.tumble.com slash ask if you want to keep that anonymous. We're going to take out the song this week. This is from the Pool House Guru. This is his take on Romans 12, 15. And remember, thanks for listening. Please, and just remember, we love you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. The Say That Podcast. This closing was originally written by Martin Luther. We changed nothing about it, but the magic is in the delivery. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Just
We 